0: Right. Yeah, I mean, that's facts. Hey, I want to shout out, uh, new schools, venture fund, right? Yeah, um, mm-hmm. They have, uh, a, they had, uh, they just closed up a, a racial equity council initiative mm. right, in which mm-hmm. they, um, they selected 20 people of color, uh, mm. in order to be the final decision makers on, uh, how they distribute their money, uh, for, for folks that, um, for folks that apply. Right. And, um, although I didn't, uh, Get selected to be a member of the council. I did apply for some bread. So <laughs> <laughs> see me in this space. <laughs> I love that. I love it. <laughs> yeah. All right. So um, you know, a couple more things that we need to talk about. Actually, there's a lot of things that we need to talk about because we get stuck in in these areas and and we just go on and on and on. Which I love, right? It means that you know it's deep and uh impactful conversations about what's happening and I know the people that are listening to us love that right so uh next topic is uh pro- pr- protecting our lgbtqi uh plus kids right um there was a um there was a a, a quote um from um the edu gladiators uh sunday chat i mean, i'm sorry saturday chat right they do a saturday mm-hmm. chat and um uh really impactful a lot of people come out and um definitely a a, a good way to uh keep educators engaged and talking about the issues in order to growth right to grow uh speaking from that growth mindset and so um their question for today was uh hateful rhetoric plus anti-lgbq2 t plus state policies and laws make it difficult for educators to teach and create inclusive learning spaces as edu gladiators. How can we affect change protecting all educators who identify in this community or engage as allies, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so I think one of the most important things for us to do first is to talk about what allyship looks like. And and then uh, we, we can kind of take it from there, right? And so for me, I guess um, I'll start. Allyship for me. I'm always repping, right? Like, you know, I, and I feel like it's super important in order for me to do that because, you know, I, I, I mean, I have kids. I don't know if one day one of my kids is going to come to me and say, hey, dad, I identify as this, right? And so, like, I always want to be and have an open mind in this space. I have relatives that identify uh, in the LGBTQIA plus community. I love them, and there's nothing that's going to ever stop me from loving them, and I'm always going to be supportive of them and their initiatives. I think that when you limit um, who people can love and how they can love, it's like you're putting limits on humanity, right? Mm. And I'm never going to be that person. I'm never going to allow that shit in my space, regardless of whatever political party I identify with, right? Love who you love, right? Right. And that's always going to be my energy what are y'all's thoughts and how can we uh be more protective of people in the space
1: so Ray, right, i want to say I've, i got a little emotional when you were talking because i think that the way you show up so publicly um in, su- in support and in love of people is is more than just like i'm repping them you're repping and you're sending a message to other people because you said not only will i rep them but you won't bring that mess around me and that's what we need more of right when we talked before about protecting black women or and protecting lgbt all of these communities the key really is around what you believe and like what you won't tolerate and so the fact that you are trying to model and teach others like Not only is that not how I rock, but you won't even rock like that in my space is what really makes the difference. And I think about, like, even if you took all those letters and all those alphabets out, what you really come down to is protecting kids. How how dare we not protect young people who we require to be in our buildings and have an obligation to ensure that they are safe? How dare we not protect the teachers and educators and families? We talk often about the children and and that's important work too. But I think about so many of my families who represent that community. Like how would it feel? Like if I have a student who says it's Mother's Day and we're making cards and I need two pieces of paper, how dare I as an educator not give them two because they have two moms? And we have to think about the ways that, schools and what we do and how we celebrate and how we operate are still so built There's just so afraid to give up on these things like you got to have a mom and a dad you got to have a this and a that like when we're getting sick people it's still like a mom and dad and two kids like that's not what everybody's family looks like and I just I think that Protecting kids is is the beginning and the end, full stop. Like educating them, loving them, encouraging them, supporting them is is all the stuff that's the extra. But at the minimum, we have a responsibility to protect children, all of them, whether they are in our classes, in our buildings, in our communities, how dare we not protect
2: children?
0: Yeah, love you for that age. Uh, What's up, Doc?
2: You know, for me... Um, I actually don't particularly care for the term allyship, right? Because I, I, I find uh, to be a co-conspirator for justice to be much more what I feel like I need from those who claim to be allies, right? And certainly, you know, it, it's semantics to some people, right? But for me, when you're a co-conspirator, you're pushing your 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 privilege chips to the center of the table for me. Oh, You're not there in my, I don't know, I'll just use an affinity group. You're not the white person who's in the Black affinity group who says, I'm there so that I can learn, um, because I'm not there as a Black person to teach you, right? And I think there's a great resource that the Anti-Oppression Network has put out about what are the responsibilities of allies, right? And um, I would argue that one of the things that I enjoy and share when I teach a class teach courses on race is, you know, that they acknowledge in order to be a good ally or co-conspirator, not to get lost in the semantics of it, um, you need to acknowledge your privilege and your power. And you need to listen more and speak less. The number of times I've been in spaces with people who claim to be allies, but they never want to acknowledge their privilege and their power you know, uh, they need to lose me with that shit. Mm-hmm. Like, you, you can't you can't show up and say you're an ally if you're not going to acknowledge the ways in which you have privilege and it's the same thing when I think about uh, LGBTQ plus uh, folks is that what, what is the privilege that I have as a cisgendered heterosexual male in, in our society, right? In the Black community, right? Like that means the types of conversations that I can have are going to be different. The way people respond to me is going to be different. Right. My ability to have this conversation and push this conversation in places that are almost held on such a uh, pedestal in our community, like the black church, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Like, you know, like I, I'm going to be in meetings and can say different things that other people will not. So I think it's about acknowledging our privilege and our power and understanding how are you going to leverage that? And it's the same way in which I think about people who talk about, well, I, I my mentor. At work, I don't need you to be my mentor, I need you to be my sponsor. <laughs> <Right>? And that's <laughs> like the real thing, right? Like there's this whole thing that's of people who are like in the sponsorship where yeah. you know, when I when someone at a, at a particular company, school district, etc., applies for the job. If you're my mentor, you may coach me on what to say in the interview. If you're my sponsor, you're gonna be in that room advocating for me to get the job. That's right nice. after you yeah. coach me on how to do it. Now, if you're not willing to push your Uh, power and privilege chips to the center of the table like lose me with that right and I think about in higher ed are there white faculty who are willing to push their power and privilege chips to the center of the table to support their faculty of color colleagues who might be marginalized in the tenure process if you ain't don't call me like I'm not interested in oh well Robert I feel so bad I saw your posting on social media man get out of here with that like, what are you willing to do, and how are you willing to pay um, your privilege forward? In the same way that I say to folks all the time, like when Black women in higher ed um, have challenges and they reach out, or we're collaborating on a project, it is incumbent on me because I understand how patriarchy works in higher education to step up and step out and say, like, "Nah, we ain't doing that today." Like, right. we're gonna cite Black women or the people who said. I had one person, I won't even say the name, but. They were like, oh, well, Robert, you know, you're the faculty member and uh, you should be first author on this uh, paper. And I was like. But I added like a paragraph to this paper (laughs) and I wrote it with my black female graduate student. Like, what are you talking about? Yeah, but you're the faculty member. Yeah, but that's a that's a random marker of power. Like, what does that have to do with anything like that? Does not mean that I understand all of her pain? That just means that I wanna be helpful. And I, I pushed back and was like, nah, I ain't gonna do that. And as a matter of fact, there was this, uh, my first article that I published was with this um, uh, 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 gay brother in Detroit. And uh, it was all about the ways in which HIV and the perception of HIV amongst black men um, played out and he passed away. And so the, the people from this uh, publishing company sent me a note, would you be willing to finish this article? Cause he passed away. And we'd love for you to switch it and be the first author. And I was like, hell no, I'm not going to be first author. I'm going to honor this brother's legacy and he's going to be first author. So in that case, um, I I stood the line and I'm like, so y'all do what y'all got to do, but I'm going to, I'm going to protest if you swap it out. So I think there are a variety of ways. Did it get published? It, yeah, it got published. Yeah, it got published. It was in 2000. Huh? <laughs>
0: Can you share it? Like
2: what what the Yeah, heck? yeah. It's a, it's in a book. Shout out to Ebenezer oh. Minnie Gallagher, man. So she uh she is big sis. She won a, a bunch of awards uh and she's at University of Illinois Urbana-Champaign. Um and again, it 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 goes in ways around power and she was my uh sponsor when I was a young academic, you know? And she what was this? just like Huh? Who was your sponsor? Ebenezer Minnie Gallagher. Okay. Um, and she's a professor now, University, Urbana, University of Illinois Urbana-Champaign uh, is one of the leading writers about race and community colleges. She's and with they, Adrian, huh?
0: She works with Adrian.
2: Yeah, she works with Adrian. Yeah, yeah. So they, they, they good people. Um, and uh, you know, I just find that there are those folks that uh, will do that, um, and I, I just think that's important. Like losing yeah. with that allyship stuff, if you aren't willing to take a stand, if you're in an affinity group. And you're not the person closest to the pain in the affinity group. Don't tell me that you should be. You're there to learn, and that's the only way I'm going to learn about the issues. Because, like, that's a problem. And we can talk sure. about mixed race, mixed gender affinity groups. I have a particular opinion, and there's a lot of research on that. Uh, but anyway, uh, I, I just think that there's a lot that we can do together collectively.
1: But there also is this thought about like allyship only when it's convenient for me. And so right. like if I'll only speak on your behalf when I'm with y'all, <laughs> but then when I'm gone, I'm not gonna speak on your behalf or, mm. or acknowledge my care and concern or talk in the same way that I would in this setting as I would in that setting, and then then that is fraud. Like that's that's exactly. not authentic. That is convenient and, and you know, I'll rock with you when it's when it's convenient for me. I'll rock with you when it feels like it'll benefit me in some kind of way or when I don't have to when there's nothing to lose. And I think that your analysis around putting your privileged chips in the pile means that there's something you will to have to lose. And there are a lot of folks who wanna be um as, as Ray used to say, adjacent to the community, but not actually a part of the actual things that are happening and the things that are required in order to improve those conditions or to name the the problem in that space so since i'm not with them like if i'm not with black women then black women don't matter <laughs> but if i'm with black women then protect black women like what what is that <laughs> you about
0: you saw i don't know if y'all saw, i don't know if y'all saw this but this was hilarious to me and it has nothing to do with what we're talking about right now jesse umar in the in the in the mall in philly no wow. With the white woman.
1: <laughs> no, I did it. <laughs> oh, I, I did.
2: All right.
1: We ain't gotta stay, we gotta stay on that
0: too long, but uh yeah, I just wanted to name that. Uh shout out to Umar. Mm. Um <laughs> so this tweet went out that you know, you you guys know I've been doing my morning message, keeping it consistent in Ooh, terms man. of uh making sure that you know we we we're sending some Ooh, and uh it it, it oh. sending send us some good messages so that we can have some dialogue about it in the morning, right? And so um this morning's morning message was uh everything everyone is always about the kids until it's time to be about the kids. Then people go missing. And so I just want to talk He's about violence
2: this morning, I see.
0: Man, hey, Some mornings you gotta choose violence, doc. So um <laughs> H, when you when you when you see this, what what is that what does that say to you?
1: I mean, to me, it says to me that it's the same thing, right? I'll be about the kids when it's convenient for me, when Mm -hmm. it's sexy, when it looks good, when it'll benefit me. But when it comes down to it, I'm really only about myself. Mm -hmm. Um, And again, I just, I can't, it's disappointing to think that we could even be in a world where people wouldn't care for, protect, and want to love on children. I even find my voice changes, my face changes when I think about the goodness and the wonder and the joy in young people. And and people don't genuinely have that. They don't see our kids and think potential, they see problems. They don't Mm -hmm. see our young people and Mm -hmm. see opportunity and and not an obstacle. They don't see even the the ones who are most challenged, they can't see the goodness in them. And so when when it's sexy, when it's cool, when it's profitable, yeah, but that's the same as with your shirt, right? It's a lot of people walking around with rainbow para, like they'll be walking around in two weeks with Juneteenth plates. But when push comes to shove, they're not oh, gonna yeah. oh, the oh, yeah. walk. You know what I'm saying? Oh, it's yeah. true. We've created these ways that it seems marketable and fun and sexy to like be on a new thing. And it has the shelf life of a TikTok video. And once it's over and it's closed, people put it away and then nobody wants to do it and deal with it anymore. And what's left are broken situations that do not help love and support children. And it's not okay. It's not, I I just, and and to me, I, I worry not only about those people, but the people who see it and like don't say anything like it seems so obvious to me like you don't really rock with us. You're just doing it because it feels good right now. You don't really care about these kids in these communities. You don't really care about these teachers. You don't really care about this 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 study. You're just doing it because it feels good right now. And, and it's the the thing. Right. Right. We've been talking about SEL and social emotional learning forever, and nobody wanted to talk about it. But now that we have all of this learning loss and all these young people who've been traumatized, like now it's like SEL is the front thing. Like, y'all, if you didn't care about them on day one, you're not going to care about them on day 100. And I would ask that people just keep it 100. If you care about money and profit, just say that and move out of the way so that those of us who care about children and communities can get in there and do the work. Because right now you're taking up space and distracting us from work that we need to be focused on. That we can't focus on because you're making people think that you really care about the problem when really all you care about is yourself.
0: Yeah. Man, you just dropped some bars right there, H. Uh, <laughs> um Yeah. <laughs> now
1: I can't get with people not doing right by my kids, right? Like you can do a lot, but don't not 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 the kids.
0: Yeah. Well, uh, Doc, where you at with this? Man, look, dude,
1: um,
2: <laughs> you know. Um, I, I I come at this from being a parent, too, right? Like, I, I just think about um, the challenges sometimes <laughs> that my oldest has had with his behavior right? And his, shout out to his teacher this year, Miss Heath, and he had a bit of a kerfuffle one day and I made him apologize. And, uh, you know, Miss Heath is the epitome of the white teacher who understands how to have conversations with kids of color and how she's always working at it, right? And she and I have talked about it numerous times. And, you know, like, she could have suspended him once for This incident, but she did it because she's like suspensions in his this case just wouldn't get what I wanted to get out of the learning for him. And he comes back to school the next day. She gave him a hug and said, I missed you because I picked him up early from school. And I was like, you need a break. She needed a break. And she just said, you know, I appreciate having you in class because you keep it all the way real. Uh, John Simmons and gave him a big hug right and was just like I'm glad you're here right and she was about the kids right and I've seen her do that with multiple children in her fifth grade class and parents have talked about it yet on the other hand I've seen teachers not be about the kids except when it's time for those glorious moments and for me it's about being about the kids at moments of struggle when they're struggling right with all sorts of challenges. Um, and, you know, <laughs> just the number of people that are only in it, and I'm going to channel some Ray Ancrum violence here. They're only in it for June, July, and August.
1: Hmm. Oh, shit! <laughs> <laughs> Yo, <Yeah>, what?
2: <laughs> there, there, there are, come on, there are Woo! educators... There are educators who were in this because they only work one hundred and eighty six, one hundred and ninety days a year. They get time off, and they don't love kids, right? And for me, as someone who started teaching in ninety six in my own neighborhood in Detroit, um, I had to love my students through pain.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: They didn't care, like that I was the a, a STEM teacher or whatever, they just they just care that I love them and spent time building those relationships. The relationship building required to be a great teacher has to happen during those other 100 and something odd days where you aren't technically there in the building. That's a fact. Right, and so for me, when I hear people say, <laughs> I told you I'm channeling my rank anchor uh, on this one H. Um, so that means to me, what what are the opportunities to co-construct love with kids when school ain't in session? Like, and what is all of our collective responsibility to support teachers doing that? Because it's not just the teachers who have to to do that. What's philanthropy's responsibility? What does it look like at Micron for us to launch Chip Camp and also have the same kids' teachers experience Chip Camp at the same time Mm -hmm. to not only co-construct love, but to co-construct learning? That's right. Right, and I think that uh, the co-constructive co-constructing of love and relationships has to happen at lunchtime, right? And you know, and and Ray always goes in on, yeah, you have your prep period and your lunch hour, but sometimes you need to sit with your kids during that time. It can't be, well, it's my lunch hour. I don't need to be around kids. Actually, you do, because your kids might need you at that moment, right? And if you aren't in it for the greater humanity as a teacher like you should get out like that's a fact um and so yeah
0: but but see yeah. but then that go that goes into that conversation that we have about about this uh this teaching shortage etc the the, the the great resignation but we don't name the fact that some of these folks that are resigning from these positions are folks that don't need to be in teaching
1: yeah and, you're, and the post said people about the kids until it's time to be about the kids, not just teachers. And I mm-hmm. would add that we're talking about politicians and community Ooh. folks. Y'all about, they're about the kids when, it's, when we got to take flowers to the grade site. We're about mm-hmm. kids when it's graduation day and we're just standing there smiling and shaking kids' hands, mispronouncing their names as they go across the stage, <laughs> not acknowledging who they were for the four not years. Not mispronouncing their names. The no, I'm serious, right? We got too many people who are who say and claim that they are about kids and about children when it is convenient, when the cameras are there, when it looks sexy. Be be there for the kids when the child is in crisis, when you got to call champs on the kid. Be there for a kid who has lost his mother or his father or whose parent got incarcerated, locked up over the weekend. Be there for a child whose stomach is growling and is still trying to show up and do what you're supposed to do. Be there for a kid who comes in with their uniform untidy, and instead of taking away a point for them because their belt's not tucked in, pull that child to the side and a place of love. So we got too many people, whether well, they're teachers, bus drivers, people on the street who are not loving and seeing and identifying these kids, and only want to show up when it's convenient. None of this is easy work, whether you're a politician, a teacher, whoever you are. And if, and again, what does this say about our society? if we cannot even share up, show up and show compassion for children for children right if we can't take care of our children and we can't take care of our elderly then then what are we really doing and and it isn't something that is new we used to do that we used to care but there's some way that we have tried to put ourselves in spaces and take on a bunch of other traits that some other societies, uh values that we don't. It gets us away from community. It gets us away from care. It gets us away from concern and love. And we look at those things as though they are negative, as having, showing love in a classroom is a problem. I'm showing love when I show up with a smile on my face. But there are so many people, teachers and others, who don't care about kids until it's convenient and sexy. And no matter who you are, If you are a political person and you hold an office and you only want to visit a school on the first day of school and graduation day, then you need to think and reconsider about whether or not this is the job that you should have. You shouldn't be in that position. If you're an administrator, a district leader, and you only show up when it's graduation day and the first day of school for the back to school night. You you don't care about kids, because you don't care about what's happening in the other 180 days. You only gonna show up on the first day and the last day? What are you?
2: Yeah, that's wild. Two time award-winning school leader, <laughs> Dr. Heather. I just Hansen. need them to move out the way. Like just
1: move out the way, create room so that we can expand, Riverside school. come on. The smallest thing you can do is show up in love. That's the, that is, and it's natural, right? It, it's, you, you have to teach yourself not okay. to show up in love. We came into the, we take up space to show up to, to share love. And we've been conditioned to think that there is something wrong with that. And that's a problem. All
0: right. So I know, I know, I know, you know that this was coming. Y'all woke me up early with this. <laughs>
2: <laughs> here, hey, I, here it is, here it is. Here it is. All
0: right, so I'm, I'm I'm gonna lay it out, lay it out strong, <laughs> right? So we got Roberto, uh, Garmin, I don't want to mispronounce his name, I don't know this dude, he doesn't follow me, I don't follow him, but um, he put out a question, he said, what types of assessments would you like to see replace standardized testing, right? Which, when you think about it, right, in the intent, I don't know his intent, but when you think about it from uh, from the perspective of, you know, um, you know, there's a lot of uh, hoopla about standardized testing, Uh, we could get caught up in the minutiae of the argument of if standardized assessment is uh, meritless or, or if it, if it uh, deserves merit. Right. And so I think the question is important because it talks about, uh, you know, if we are going to replace it, what would we use to replace it? Right. Because, you know, you have folks that are in one camp that, you know, there's conversation about, well, standardized assess are inherently racist and, um, you know, and in, in, in things of that nature, which, which I think get us caught up in just this whole back and forth, right? And so I want to focus right now on what would we recommend to replace this, right? I want to be solution-oriented as best as I can, given the fact that this tweet is cap.
1: Yeah. So I think the challenge is in the way the question was formed. And so... If the question is, what types of assessment would we like to see that inform mastery, that show growth, that assess teaching and learning, then I think that's a bigger question. And I think part of what we do is that the challenge is we believe we have too many systems that think standardized testing is the only way to assess knowledge, to assess mastery, to assess growth and skills that it's one way and if we and the question about what are the other ways that we can check for teaching and learning right like I think we can have conversations with kids we can think about portfolios we can think about different ways of grouping children we can think about growth over time I think that there are different ways that we can assess high quality teaching and learning and check for mastery just like teachers check for understanding all the time they're not given a standard question at the end of every type Every topic that they go through, but they are collecting data all the time to assess whether or not a skill is being mastered and if they're moving towards understanding it and being able to uh, understand and apply. I think a lot of the critique that standardized tests get is that you there are some things that are application and then there's some things that are just like tell me the right answer. And if we say that this is the only way to know whether or not high quality teaching and learning is happening, then I think that's where we get, where it gets messy, and I think that's where it gets wrong.
0: Dope. Uh, uh, Nuance King, uh, where are you at with it?
2: First of all, we, I think we use standardized tests incorrectly, right? I want to name that, right? Psychometricians have said, using a standardized test as a single way of assessing Teacher quality is not what standardized tests are designed to do. Right. So there's that. I, I do think you need some sort of testing to just dis- to know where kids are in progress. As a parent, I want to know how my kids are doing. Right. So there's that. Uh, I think there need to be options like portfolios. And the argument against it is always, well, Robert, it takes too long and it's hard. OK. So our kids ain't worth it. <laughs> like, what, what do you mean? Like, we're, so you mean to tell me that a kid sits down. You give them a sheet of paper that's the only way we know how to measure learning in a society where we put people on the moon like i don't understand like we can't get more nuanced than that like and like let's add to it the intersection with capitalism when companies make big money off of this stuff right i won't name any names we know who they are <laughs> mm-hmm. but like us being addicted to standardized testing in its current construct is big business, right? Are we willing to take a stand for our kids? Why, and, and I always say to folks in higher ed where you have more and more people acknowledging that SAT, ACT is not an accurate predictor of how well someone will do in college. Why are we still using SAT, ACT as a determination of how well kids do in high school? Because we've we've been a, we've been brainwashed, hoodwinked, and bamboozled into believing that standardized tests are the answer. Last thing I'll say is, when you give a teacher the standardized test data uh, at the end of the year, like what am I mm-hmm. going to do with that? You giving me this at the end of fifth grade and the kid in sixth grade—they're not even in the building anymore in many cases. Like, what is that going to tell me to help me improve my pedagogy, my instruction to work with that child? And this is why I always. Uh, enjoy conversations and I know uh, I've heard uh, H talk about this quite a bit about the different forms of assessment and different times in which you assess whether it's a a formative assessment in March and how often you do the assessment I think was the last conversation I remember y'all having Um, and so I think that you know like yeah I do think you need standardized tests but this question is like but in what context? Literacy? Math? High school, like, what, what are we talking about yeah. in, the, in the case of this question? Um, and so, and I do think it's a relevant question to puzzle through. And y'all know my my other position on this is that, you know, like, shame on Fairfax public schools and I'll choose violence because my own child had to take the SOLs on, on this stuff. And like, you're going to make an assessment on what he's learned and, and growth, but like, he ain't really been in school for two years. Not in a traditional sense. So what's your benchmark? Like, what, what do you like to do? What, like, what is it going to test you or are we just fueling the, uh, the for-profit testing industry? And again, I'm not knocking those who work in testing. All I'm saying is that why are we so addicted to thinking that their particular methodology is legit when psychometricians have given us good advice on how to do that. Um, and again, I think a lot of this comes out of the ed reform movement, right, where there's this addiction to using standardized tests to decide if a teacher is a good teacher and all these other things. And again, I'm not suggesting you don't do that, but there is definitely nuance uh, to that. So let me
0: jump in here because every time somebody says something about ed reform on this show, I feel like I need to be like the beacon of hope <laughs> for those people like, that will want reform. And so yeah, that's that's cap, doc. All right. So so here's here's what I'm gonna say about this question, right? And so when I think about this question, I also think about um the teacher made assessments, right? I also mm. think about mm. the makeup of teacher of the teachers that are in the field. If you have 80% of teachers that are teaching uh, students if you have uh the majority of the teachers that are teaching in the inner city that identifies white uh although they don't live in those communities right there's some inherent racist practices that we don't name that they bring into the work with them right and so if these teachers are human not psychometricians uh that are that, that are giving these tests right so there's there's a level of racism mm-hmm. that exists in these teacher made assess- assessments that we don't name that that are there right like it's inherent right and so you know if you have folks that have a low bar for uh for our students uh i think that i think TNTP did a study on the uh, there's there's a high percentage of, of of teachers that don't even that teach in uh in inner city in, in inner city uh, black black and brown communities that don't even teach these kids on grade level right mm-hmm. so if i'm not teaching you on grade level because i don't think that much about you or for you right mm-hmm. uh then how the hell is the test that i give you or the test that i make for you not gonna um have those components or those traces of me being racist in terms of how i approach the work right and so i think that we need to name that as well when we start talking about standardized testing and we start thinking about alternatives for standardized testing because i feel like i trust a testing company more than i trust uh, a lot of these teachers that are in uh in the classrooms with our teachers that don't Whoa! give a shit about yeah. them, that don't give a shit about them
1: well, I would also say too, like, I think about some of the best conversations that I, we, we used to have with our instructional coaches and our teachers looking at student work and how we would black out the names of the students. Because mm-hmm. I don't want teachers to come in thinking, oh, I already know this kid did this. So, you know, he's never done that. Oh, this must be her paper because she's always, you know, done this and this. And those conversations would help teachers guide what they needed to do next to, be, to figure out like, what were the trends? They all got this wrong well they all got this right and i think we need to be having more intentional discussions about student work and student mastery and the things that need to happen in order to move students where they are and not always kind of get into these buckets around this kind of kid performs this kind of way and i think to, to doc's point about when these test scores come in and oftentimes it's after the fact Oftentimes, teachers are having their first introduction to students based on some test data or some portfolio or some disciplinary file for kids that they haven't even met that a nine-year-old might look completely different as a seven-year-old and 11-year-old. So I think we have to think too about like, what is the outcome? What is the purpose of this thing? Are we doing this because we're trying to create a narrative or sustain an argument that all of these schools are funding and we need more money? Or are we doing it because we genuinely want to have rich, meaningful discussions about where students are so that we can be honest about that and address those gaps? Too many times, I think, when we talk about standardized testing, it's inherent that we're looking for some kind of failure, some kind of flaw, some kind of this grade didn't. And we also, some of our best conversations about student data took place with teachers. It included teachers who weren't necessarily their teacher right then. We needed the preschool and kindergarten and first grade teachers to be helping us understand the data that we were looking at for third and fourth grade students because there is some conversation that, that can be meaningful there to help us understand how teachers can use data to get better. If you are just providing data for people to put a picture or a sticker on the wall or to say you have and you don't, and aren't thinking about how you can use that to form high-quality instruction that is engaging and meets students' and families' needs, then it's just another one of those things that we're doing to say that we do it. It has no value and no purpose in school. It's not going to make a difference on teaching and learning.
0: Hey, listen, you'll get no disagreements here, right? Uh, I like how you uh, skewed to the side of Doc and, and agreed with him. And they didn't want to name the fact that 80% of teachers identify as white and they approach this But woman. I
1: think that's that's an administrative thing. If you know you got white teachers in your building who are making tests that are not serving kids, then where are your coaches? Where are you? Where are you having conversations about these teacher-created assessments and these teachers-created
0: tests? H knock it off there's only 11 11 11 percent of school principals 11 percent of school principals are black right so,
1: how many school principals were good teachers
0: no 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 listen to what I'm saying here right so if you have 11 percent of if you have 11 percent of school principals that are black and you have 80 percent of teachers that are white there's far more teachers than there are principals in order to be able to get with their coaches and, and have that level of scrutiny in terms of like, what, what, what is there and what, what is not?
1: Sure. I don't disagree, but I think I would also argue that there are a lot of teachers who are in buildings with administrators who don't know content. And so if you mm-hmm. don't know content as an administrator or a district leader, then when yeah. that teacher is creating some wackadoo assessment, they're not yes. even able to have that conversation, whether it's about race or about content. Too it's many just, people. Too many people, And
0: no shade. I, I don't want to choose violence because I know it's a Saturday.
1: It's a lot of PE teachers running schools.
0: Hey, I'm oh! not, absolutely not going to do this. Shout out to PE teachers. Y'all mean just as much to our community. Shout as
1: out to the PE teachers.
0: Any other it's area teachers.
1: a lot of high oh. and, y'all oh. able, and, y'all gonna gonna
0: and y'all should be able to run schools too. And y'all should be able to run schools too. Ain't nobody hearing that. All right, closing thoughts. Doc, jump in here. What's your closing thoughts?
2: on this double
0: episode uh
2: my closing thought is uh i'm excited today um our 11 year old had covid he's on his way back and uh my joy uh was yesterday was after school taking the two of them to the park um seeing them run around and just black boy joy just our youngest took a basketball from a kid and just started running around um and i had to tell him to give it back Um, And today I'm taking uh, our oldest to the barbershop, one of his favorite things. Uh, He hasn't been since he's had COVID. He can officially go back. I'm just excited, man, for him to be out in the world, um, experiencing uh, the world as a little black boy who's getting ready to go to sixth grade. So shout out to John Simmons for uh, just just, uh, being my pride and joy and just, uh, you know, he he has his challenges uh, at times where he frustrates me, but he's genuinely a good kid. Um, and putting up uh, a 10 and five on his AAU team. So uh, I ain't mad at him. Uh, I don't think he's the next LeBron James, um, but I want him to be the next John Simmons. So go ahead. I love
1: love how how joyful you all are when you talk about your families and your community. I think that's great. So um, my final word is for those young people or people who are spending their summers working on their proposal, um, I had a great conversation with, with two Black women who are interested in math and STEM who are doctoral students at American University. Shout out to Jen and Ashley. Um, and I just got to chop it up with them yesterday to help them think about the kind of questions that they need to ask, to to make space for their learning, for to, to to name the things that they are worried about and the things that they are excited about. So shout out to those who are going to be spending their summer or the next few weeks trying to get through their proposals, trying to collect some data, trying to design some tools. Um, I want to encourage you to remember that your chapter five is about the significance and be thinking about on those days when it's hard and you're still waiting for IRB approval and you don't want to do it, like be thinking that what you are contributing to should shape the field. It should shape the study and it should improve the way that other scholars and others begin to think about the questions that you are raising. So shout out to those people who are, are committed to making a difference in higher ed. Do the yeah. research.
0: Thanks for naming that. Um, so my, my, um, my closing thoughts are, man, not only do you wear the gear for the community, but make sure you're out there representing and being not more than an ally, right? We're going to be co-conspirators for, uh, for the LGBTQIA community. I also want to lift both of y'all, man, because y'all are doing some amazing work and we don't necessarily get to talk about y'all nine to fives, uh, and the work that you guys are doing for our community to be impactful and and to bring joy, uh, in this space. And so I just want to name that and say that I appreciate you guys. Uh, and, um, yeah, I I came into to this uh, this tape and reluctant because I'm like, man, I got other things that I could do. I'm dissertating, right? But
1: <laughs> this, <laughs>
0: but this, uh, this this gave me joy, and and I appreciate you guys. And I just want to just name that. All right, so you guys have been listening to the uh, three times dope podcast, and uh, we will see you soon. Uh, peace.